thank you for, for coming and showing up. And Lord, you've even called us to your throne. Lord, you've said, come boldly before the throne. And that's such a, because of Christ, that's such a move from, from the Old Testament. Not that you didn't want to meet with your children. You absolutely did. But there had to be this thing that took place that would allow us to come boldly right to your throne and see you face to face. And so we thank you for that. Father, I thank you for the generosity of my brothers and sisters in giving to things that you're doing through our church across the globe and, and here in Cincinnati and here in Maryland. And so I ask you to multiply that, Lord. Would you multiply that out, God, that, that we would just see the kingdom come. You would use our resources, whatever those resources are, to see the kingdom come. Lord, we yeah. ask for that. In Jesus' name. And Father, I ask as we move into a time in your word that you would bless my brother Jamie. Lord, fill him with your spirit. Um, just give him uh, prophetic words and teaching gifts and abilities in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have Amanda come up here and she's going to share the word with Good morning. Good morning. Before Jamie comes up, I'm going to read Luke. I'm not Luke. <laughs> I'm going to be reading from Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits... He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went down to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? 
Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The very word of God. Good morning. Some of you uh, creatures of habit are saying, wait, we didn't stand and greet. So during later in the sermon, we're actually going to have a chance where we're going to actually turn to our neighbor and discuss. So there will be some greeting time, but we decided to just kind of skip over that and jump right into the text. If you would turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3, please. Ruth chapter 3. And Michael, we're going to jump to the very end. I feel the presence of the Lord so strong on me about something. The very last application. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your written word. I thank you for this story. I thank you for this love story between Ruth and Boaz. I thank you that a guy and a gal get together and you do something amazing. You do something that changes all of human history because a man and a woman decide to follow you. And Holy Spirit, I am asking that you will come and you will give us eyes to see Jesus. I ask for the scales in my own eyes to fall off even now. Jesus, we want to love you more than we love you now. We want to have more zeal and passion for your glory and your name than we have ever known. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you will come and change our hearts and minds and make us people that are wholly devoted to Jesus. You are the Holy One. There is none like you, Jesus. There is no God like you. So we honor you here in this place. And I ask that you will come and speak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ruth chapter 3, the very first verse, Naomi uses a word, and it's a very specific word. It's the word rest. Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest? For you. Should I not seek rest for you? The word rest means home. It means peace. It is a place of peace and security and comfort. It is a place that feels like home. It's that place where you take a deep breath. Everyone take a deep breath in and then a big exhale. That feeling right there, times infinity, that's peace. 
and rest and home. And what I feel strongly to say to us is that we are being lied to about where we find home everywhere we look. You watch TV and watch a commercial, that's a lie to you about where you find home. You drive down the street and there's a billboard and it says, you need this thing. And the implicit and explicit message is, if I had that, I would feel peace and home. There's even a temptation in this text, especially for all the single people in the room, to go, oh, here we go. The only reason Ruth has rest is because she finds a boy. (laughs) The word rest in the biblical narrative, in the meta-narrative of the Old and New Testament, the word rest has a very specific theme. And Boaz, yes, will provide a measure of rest to Ruth. But it is not ultimate rest. It is not ultimate peace. Guess what? When baby Obed starts crying at 2.30 in the morning, uh, Boaz will let Ruth down. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Uh, Ruth eventually is going to get let down by Boaz. This wasn't even in the first sermon, so I'm just, we're just going, okay? <laughs> Boaz will let Ruth down. So let's, let's not get twisted. When she says, should I not seek rest, the biblical narrative goes, yeah, Boaz is going to bring some rest to Ruth, but that rest is a shadow, it is a symbol, it is a sign to something greater, to something that will actually bring rest. And it's a sign, every single woman in the, in the room, listen, I don't care how awesome he looks to you, he will not satisfy you. And every boy in the room, I don't care how hot she is, she will not satisfy you ultimately. Boaz is pointing to one man who will bring rest, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who brings us, listen, to the Father. God self-reveals himself as a Father. That's home. You and I were created to be with Abba, to be at home with him, to rest with him. So when we see Boaz, that he is the rest that Naomi says Ruth needs, it's a sign, it's a shadow, a point or two. Every single one of us wants to feel home, and you will only feel it and find it in Jesus. You say, Jamie, where did you get that in the text? It's not there. Jesus is not here. In the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the word for rest there is a specific word. Jesus uses it in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, everyone say it, rest. rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, everybody, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The sermon this morning is Ruth chapter 3. We're talking about obedience. And I want you to see the tie between obedience and rest. They are, in fact, tied together. Obedience and rest are tied together. Now, you may say to me, Jamie, that doesn't... I'm, the smell test, that I'm not sure that that passes the smell test. How would obeying God, doing what God tells me to do, how would that equal rest? 
Because I'm about to talk about Naomi, she did this and she obeyed in this way. And I'm about to talk about Ruth and she obeyed in this way. And I'm about to talk about Boaz, he obeyed in this way. But all of this has to do with rest. So how do we get there? Go back to that text from Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all those who are worn out. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The imagery that Jesus uses is that of a a yoke, which is a a wooden beam that would be attached to the head of one ox and then another ox over here. It was a yoke that hung over both heads of these oxen. Usually there was a wiser, older ox and a younger, less experienced ox. And what would happen is, is that the experienced ox would start to go this way, and the younger one's like, oh, okay, we're going now? Okay. And the experienced ox would turn, and the younger one would go, okay, okay, I guess we're turning now. Okay, okay. The younger one was learning the ways of the older one. And Jesus says, that's rest. When I'm yoked up to Jesus, and Jesus calls me to obey, he's calling me to do what he is doing. He's calling me to think the way he thinks. He's calling me to treat another as he treats another. Obedience is not a checklist where I have to do things as a contract to be in relationship with Christ. Obedience is relational intimacy with Jesus, whereas I do what Jesus does. And oh, by the way, you know where Jesus is going? He's going to Abba, Father, who is home. You and I were created to be in a garden with the Father and to walk with him in the cool of the day. You and I were created to walk with a creator who loves us and is home. And we think doing it our own way is what will satisfy. But actually, it's staying close to Abba and Jesus and Holy Spirit that satisfies. So disobedience, follow me. Disobedience is going, okay, Jesus and Father and Holy Spirit are going this way. That's home. Disobedience is going, nah, don't want to do it. I'm going to go this way. That's why we get all stressed out and freaked out. Rest is going, you know what? I want to follow. I want to obey. I want to do what Abba says. And that's where home is. Again, obedience is not contractual. Obedience is relational. Y'all hearing me this morning? You know, I, I don't look at Jess and I go... I guess I'm just not going to cheat on her. I guess it's just a, it's a rule I got to... Yeah, okay, I guess I won't cheat on her. What kind of relationship is that? I don't want to... I don't want to, I don't want to cheat on Jess because I don't want to hurt Jess. It's relational. The same way with obedience and disobedience. I, I don't want to disobey. I don't want to walk away from peace. I don't want to walk away from the Father. I don't want to walk away from home. I don't want to injure relationship with Jesus. That's the heart of obedience. Yes. Obedience is tied to rest. You want to feel, quote unquote, rest this Christmas season in the midst of craziness and candy canes and fruitcakes that no one ever eats and all that crazy stuff? You want to feel rest? Obedience and relational connection to Abba, Jesus, and the Spirit. Sin loses power in my life when I don't say, 
oh, I just, I better not do that thing. But when I start to say, I don't want to hurt the heart of the Father. I, I don't want to walk away from home. I'm telling you, when we were singing, that we were asking God to open our eyes, my sense was a lot of us, including Jamie, have been blinded to the fact that we think what we do is going to bring us joy. But when it's not in accordance to God's word, it's actually taking us away from peace. We're being blinded. So the call is to return to rest and in obedience. Okay, start back at the beginning, Michael. So you got another uh, 50 minutes ready? Is that right? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Obedience. It's the message this morning. Obedience. Remember the context of Ruth? Like any great literature, you need to understand the context of what's happening here. And if you look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So the narrator, the author of Ruth, is saying to us, everything in Ruth needs to be seen through the lens of this is the days of the judges. Now you may say, okay, that's helpful. What does that mean? Well, if you just turn one page over to the last verse at the book of Judges, this is Judges 21-25, this is how the book of Judges reveals that time period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is to say, everyone was doing whatever they wanted to do with whoever they wanted to do it at whatever time they felt like it because they were the individual arbiters of right and wrong. Fair? Now, I don't have to make too much of a push here. Does that sound like our culture? (laughs) Our culture prizes individual autonomy. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what I do. No one else can talk and tell me anything else. I'm the one who's in charge. Again, you think that brings peace and home. Takes you away. So we're going to look at three characters who in this concept, everyone's doing whatever they want to do, and you have three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, who are models models for us of obedience in the context of, of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. So this is how it works. Three parts to the sermon, even though I've already preached half of it. One, Naomi's prayerful plan. That's verses 1 to 4. Two, Ruth's risky obedience, verses 5 to 9. And then finally, Boaz's faith-filled response, verses 10 to 18. So let's begin with Naomi's prayerful plan. In spite of a culture that says, you do you, you, you make your own destiny, you just kind of do your own thing. Naomi actually looks after her daughter-in-law in three ways. One, she takes responsibility for her daughter-in-law in prayer. Again, she says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And it's interesting, that word rest and that concept is actually shows up in chapter 1, verse 9. This, they're in Moab. She's trying to get them to leave because she's going to go back home. And she looks at both of her daughters-in-law, and she says this, verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest. So Naomi has been praying for the rest over Ruth since chapter 1. So Naomi's been faithfully 
praying, praying for rest, praying for breakthrough, praying for God to move in Ruth's life. But not only is she taking responsibility to pray, she doesn't just wait around for God to move. She actually makes a plan. She says, is not Boaz our relative? Oh, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Head on down there. She actually makes a plan. So she's not just praying. She's actually making a plan. And thirdly, she instructs Ruth that now is the time. The time of mourning is over. It says here that Boaz was winnowing barley at the threshing floor. I'm not an ag guy, so I had to look this up. But apparently all the harvest has been taken in. So this is several weeks of work before this happens. Are you all following me? So from the last chapter, Ruth is just helping out with the harvest. Now all of the harvest has been brought in, and now they're going to thresh. So weeks have passed. So it's like watching a movie, and there's like the montage of the people working. You know, like Ruth's working. She looks at Boaz, and they're like winking at each other. And there's working, working, working. So several weeks have passed. And mother-in-law says, now's the time. And it's interesting The implication is, is that Ruth has still been wearing some sort of mourning garb. Remember, her husband passed away in Moab, remember? And the language that mama-in-law says, wash yourself, anoint yourself with oil, put on a cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, it alludes to David, this is in 2 Samuel, David loses his child, remember? And he gets up. He washes, he anoints himself with oil, he gets dressed, and he goes about his business. It alludes to the fact that the time of mourning is over. It's time to move into the next season. So God, God, through Naomi, is speaking to Ruth, saying, now is the time. Go ahead and go. She puts a plan into place. So what's important? Naomi takes responsibility for Ruth in prayer and in action. She trusts God to answer this prayer. And she gets moving, even though she doesn't know exactly how everything will turn out. Here's what I want you to see. Passivity is not a kingdom value. Passivity is not a kingdom value. Pray, yes, and then start doing something. You know in church culture sometimes we're like, I'm just going to pray about it, brother. (laughs) I'm just going to pray about that. And then you're not going to do anything. You You know what I'm saying? Let let me pray on that. That's code for I ain't doing it. We laugh because it's true. Part of what's happened is our culture has actually seeped into the church. In our culture right now, we live in a culture of passivity. Partly because of FOMO, fear of missing out. I'm I'm afraid that I'm not going to experience all the good stuff that everybody else gets to experience. And through FOMO, now I got FOBO. Fear of better options. So someone comes up to me and says, hey, do you want to come to my Christmas party? I go, eee. And then back of my mind, what if the cooler friend that I really wish would invite me to their party, what if their party's at the same time? And then I said yes to this, and I can't go, right? Oh, y'all don't struggle with that. It's just me. Fear of better options. That, then, we're, then we're like, uh, let me pray about it, right? That leads to the fear of doing anything. Our culture actually is paralyzed by an inability to do anything. There are so many options. Like, just as a funny example, I will get on Netflix and I can't watch anything. I will spend 10 minutes because there's too many options. I will, I'm spinning, I'm spinning. Maybe I could do that. Ah, uh, this would be better. Uh, and I just constantly go. And then eventually I just turn it off and I don't watch anything. Am I the only one? 
FOMO leading to FOBO leading to fear of doing anything. And that's creeped into the church. And we try to spiritualize it. I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to let him do it. Let him take it. I'm giving it to you. Passivity is not a kingdom value, friends. Now you may say, Jamie, this is, this is dangerous stuff because like, what if I start doing something and it's the wrong thing? What if, what, what if I step out into something and it's the wrong thing? Well, how about you just trust God will t- show you? <laughs> the Holy Spirit has been given to us and Jesus called him a guide. This is what a good guide does. If I'm walking the wrong way, the guy goes, uh-uh, okay, let's go this way. That's what a good guide does, right? Remember Paul? Paul gets sent on a missionary journey. He's heading out. He doesn't, he doesn't, ask, he doesn't ask God, okay, wh- which speedway should I go first? Where do I gas up? What am I going to do? He just starts going. So much so that he actually gets to a place where he's like, okay, we're going to go into Asia. That's the next place we're going to go. It feels good to us. We're just going to go to Asia, start ministering to Asia. What does the Bible say? The Holy Spirit forbid them from going to Asia, right? So Paul's just going. God said, go to the nations. Paul said, okay, forbidden. I was like, oh, he says, the spirit of Jesus kept me from going. So what should we do right now? Let's take a nap. So he takes a nap. He has a dream. In the dream, he sees a Macedonian man saying, come over here. He wakes up from the dream. He goes, we're forbidden from going to Asia. We're going to go to Macedonia, right? What happened if Paul goes, he's called us to go to the nations. Let's just wait until he tells us exactly where to go. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Same with Abram. Yahweh comes to Abram and says, you're going to leave the land of your fathers and go to the land that I will show you. So Abram had to get up off his horse, almost said something else, and then start walking to the land that he would be shown. Naomi is showing us something. Pray, yes, and then start doing something and trust that the Holy Spirit will guide you. Application questions. One, are you praying for those in your care? Are you praying for your kids, your family, your friends, your coworkers? Are you actually praying for breakthrough in their life? Are you praying for rest in their life? Are you praying that they would engage more and more with Abba and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Secondly, are you intentional about acting upon those prayers for them? As parents, we need to be intentional about curating and and molding the hearts of our kids Godward. I can't just pray, God, just just do it. Do it in their life. I have responsibility to intentionally move in ways that allow God to move in their life. Are you all hearing me here? Thirdly, is your life marked by passivity or intentional kingdom activity? Are you waiting for God to just do something in your life or are you moving towards him? Let's say you're struggling with consistent sin. Pray for breakthrough, yes, and then go find an accountability partner. And then go do what you need to do to intentionally move towards that. Are you, right? Pray and then act. Naomi was prayerful and she put a plan into place. Two, Ruth's risky obedience. In spite of a culture here that says, you don't answer to anyone. You are your own authority. Ruth honors her spiritual authority and she obeys even though it's risky. She confesses trust in Naomi's plan. She says, all that you say, I will do. 
And then she follows up and actually does it. Like, you know, those people who say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then they don't do it. She actually follows through. She obeys and follows through on the plan. And she boldly steps out in faith at great risk to herself personally. There's some social things at play that I'm, I just want to take a quick second just so you understand how risky all of this is. The Bible says that Boaz was sleeping outside at the threshing room floor. Now you may say, why is he out at the threshing room floor? Why isn't he in his house? Right? That's the question I asked. Well, in this culture, they've harvested, they've put it in a barn type thing. They're going to be threshing it, but that process takes a while. Guess what? There's thieves who would come and steal your stuff, right? So picture Boaz as John Wayne kicked up in his chair with a shotgun in his hand, protecting the stuff. That's what's happening. Okay. He's protecting the stuff. Now, this girl comes up smelling all fancy, dressed up. She uncovers his feet and is laying down with him. Now, there's a lot here that I don't have time to get into. But there's clear um, uh, romantic overtones happening here. And it's clear that this is a risky situation. Boaz could have taken advantage of her, right? In fact, in this culture, it's probably very likely that most men were taking advantage of these women. Especially in the middle of the night. Especially in the threshing room floor. Boaz, once he finds out who she is, he could have mocked her. He could have gossiped about her. He could have kicked her out. He could have, she would have lost her job. There's a lot at play here. And it's interesting. When he says, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Remember when Dennis was talking about the kanaf, the wings of God? And he like, it was so awesome, like hold the shawl up like Dennis did, you know. He held it up, like we're under the wings of God. And I was like, yeah. Ruth is now changing that and saying, Boaz, I want to be under your wings. So visually, it's like the varsity quarterback takes his letterman jacket off and puts it on his girl, you know. Symbolizing, that's my girl. She's saying, basically, bottom line, she's asking him to marry her. It's a proposal. And this is scandalous, friends. Number one, she's a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. And we know from the history that's coming later in the Old Testament, there's a lot of issues between Israelites uh, marrying foreign women. So for a foreign person to propose to an Israelite is scandalous. Two, she's a woman. In this culture, that don't happen. In fact, in our culture, it doesn't happen a whole lot, right? Can you imagine in this culture? She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She's younger. He makes implications. You could have gone with these younger guys, but you're going with me. So she's a younger woman, foreigner, and she's a hired worker talking to the landowner and, and proposing. Do you all see those? She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She's younger, and she's a worker. Do you know how risky this is? Side note. Uh, the Bible oftentimes is criticized as being a patriarchal document. And Christianity is criticized as being a patriarchal religion. It is true that the context by which the Bible was written and God revealed himself is a patriarchal context. But when you look at the text, you actually see this is radical in its view of women based off of the culture that it's in. That God uses Naomi and Ruth to do this is crazy. 
in a patriarchal culture. So I just want to say that. God is not shy of using women in the kingdom. Okay. Important. Regardless of the risk, Ruth obeys God and Naomi, who is her spiritual authority, even though she didn't know how it would play out. Reminds me of Esther obeying her uncle Mordecai. Queen Esther is asked to go see the king, and in that day, in that culture, if someone goes and sees the king uninvited, they could get their head chopped off. But she obeys her spiritual authority in Mordecai. Reminds me of Mary, who obeyed the angel Gabriel. Even though she's engaged, she's now pregnant. The angel says, this is what's going on. This is what you're going to do. She says, let it be done as you have said. So, keeping up your image. Next slide. Keeping up your image is not a kingdom value. We live in a culture that prizes image, wisdom, and success. And yet Jesus uses the foolish things to shame the wise things. Jesus, I'm sorry. God asks Ruth to do something that could cost her everything, and she obeys. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And there's a great leader, a previous generation would say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Because faith is not, I don't know the end from the beginning, but I'm going to trust God. Which means there is the possibility that I will fail, or that I will look stupid, or that I will get killed. Or that I will be shamed, or that people will think I'm crazy. Faith requires us to not care about our own image and reputation. Y'all hear me? In a previous ministry, I was a, I was a lead pastor. And um, I had this moment where I heard God say to me, I heard the Father say to me very clearly. He said, Jamie, would you be okay? Which is funny of him to ask that. <laughs> would you be okay if I used you to be the pastor that puts this church to, into the ground and closes its doors and then is replanted by another church, a more successful church? And my first reaction was like, yeah, of course. And then I started thinking, oh, wait. Then people are going to think I'm the pastor that killed that church. And I started thinking, man, I started, I started analyzing my own heart. You see, the father was lovingly exposing fear of man and that I loved my reputation. I loved being a successful pastor more than what Abba says about me. And he exposed it. And I'd like to say that in 30 seconds I had it resolved. It took several weeks, friends. It took several weeks for me of just processing and going, okay, like so people in this community are going to be like, that's the guy who killed our church that we love. And, you know, all that stuff. And it was a process, like crushing grapes, it was a process of killing reputation in my heart. Because I thought I was holier than I really was. I thought that I had dealt with some of those things. But the Father was so loving, he wouldn't allow that pride and that sin to carry into my next ministry assignment, which is here. Why? Because whether we realize it or not, a lot of times we really care about what other people think about us more than what God says about us. And he will intentionally ask us to do things that will threaten that reputation to expose the pride and sin in our life. Are you all hearing me this morning? 
It's risky. We must be willing to look like fools for Christ. Application question. Are you submitted to spiritual authority in your life? Another way to say this would be, are there people in your life that actually know you and have the freedom to speak into your life and say, that is not of God? Do do you have people in your life that know you and have freedom to say, this is what God is saying and this is wrong in your life. You need to change. Or this time is over. It's time to move into a transition into a new thing. Do you have people in your life like that? Second question. Are you willing to look like a fool to follow Jesus? Thirdly, where are you practicing risky obedience right now? What are you stepping into right now that in the back of your mind you think, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but if God doesn't do it, I'm in trouble. Where are you practicing risky obedience right now? You're stepping, following, and you don't know how that's going to turn out. Because that's what kingdom life looks and feels like. I'm following a king, and I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I trust him. Risky obedience. Thirdly, Boaz's faith-filled response. So in spite of a culture that says, do what you want, and you are the arbiter of what's right and wrong, Boaz honors God and Ruth in a couple of ways. First, he blesses and honors Ruth. He doesn't take advantage of her or objectify her. He could have done whatever he wanted to do to her in that moment. He doesn't objectify her. He honors her. This could have been a one-night stand situation. could have been a me-too situation. And Boaz honors her. Secondly, Boaz honors God's command Boaz hears from Ruth. She says, will you marry me, basically? He's like, yes, I, I, yes, I want to do that. He goes, however, and he starts to appeal to Torah, to the law. He says, but there is another closer kinsman redeemer, and really he has the claim. And, and Dennis will talk about it next week, so I'll give that to him. So that, there's one who is closer, so I'm going to go talk to him first, and then if he doesn't want to redeem you, then I will. Can you think about that in our culture? Boy meets girl. Girl says, I love you. Boy says, I love you. And then it's like, we're going to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And here's a man who goes, not only are we not going to have sex right now, we're actually going to back up even more because the Torah says this, and we're going to wait. (laughs) He's a man of honor. Thirdly, Boaz provides for Ruth. He gives grain to Ruth and Naomi, sends her home. And then he's a man of his word. The very last verse in this chapter, when Ruth is reporting back to Naomi, Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. This struck me so hard because what this says is that Boaz was known as a man that if he says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. He's a man of his word. He's a man of integrity. And it struck me because there are times in my life where I say something, but I'm really not going to fulfill that. 
And that's not a faith-filled response. Let our yes be yes and let our no be no. And if we say that we're going to do something, let's do it. In our culture, similar to this culture, moral individualism is not a kingdom value. We live in a culture that prizes you do what you think is right or wrong. And our culture sees biblical ethics as oppressive and outdated. And I gave the example of sexual ethics. Biblical ethics are life-giving and meant for our flourishing. I told the first service folks, uh, when Jess and I were engaged, it was the hardest six months of my life, I'll be honest with you. There's moments where you look at each other, and you're like, it's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. Like, come on, you love me, I love you. And in our culture right now, it's kind of like, oh, Jamie, really? Biblical sexual ethic, like saving marriage and saving sex until you're married? Like, come on, Jamie, that's so outdated. That's what our culture says. But do you realize that we actually have a creator who has created us and knows exactly how we function the best? And when he puts parameters around us, including sexual relationships, he's putting those parameters for our flourishing and for our life, not for our oppression. It would be like if someone created a a train and built a train and then built the tracks for that train and said, here are the tracks, you're a train, you get to flourish and live, go down these tracks. And let's say that this train goes, you know what? These tracks are oppressive and outdated. I want to be a boat. I want to float on the water. I see those boats over there. I want to be over there. And so the train goes, hops off the tracks, goes down the hill and hits into the water. You know what happens to that train when it gets off the tracks? that it was created to be on and goes and tries to be a boat, what happens to that train? Boom! Destruction. So listen, I know our culture says it's outdated. But you and I were not created to have sexual relationships with anyone outside of a marriage relationship. Yes, sir. And that's not oppressive. That's for life. That's for flourishing. And I know there are folks that have failed in this area, and I have good news for you. There is grace to walk in purity right now. You don't have to feel shame about that. There is good news. There is a Savior who says, why don't you come to me? Yeah, I know you did that. I know you did. Why don't you come here to me? Why don't you exchange that sin for my righteousness and come walk with me? So you can start right now in purity. Hmm. God is the creator. He knows what's best and how we live best. There's a Christmas parallel with Joseph. Matthew 1 and 2. Joseph sees that Mary is pregnant and she's his fiance. And he's like, "Mm, what happened? And it says that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was going to divorce her quietly. He was a man of integrity. He was going to honor her, not objectify her. Then an angel comes. He says, stay with her and you're going to name the child Jesus. He obeys. He abstains from this relationship with her until Jesus is born. He uproots his family because an angel says Herod is killing all the boys. He leaves for Egypt. He comes back to Israel after Herod has passed away. An angel said, go back. He relocates to Nazareth. And the rest is history. Application questions. Do you act with honor towards the vulnerable around you? Two, are you willing to bless those around you. 
Three, do you yield to God's word or are you yielding to your own sense of right and wrong? And finally, are you a person of integrity whose word can be trusted? This is how we're going to end. Miss Mary, if you'll come on up. This is how we're going to end. We're actually going to uh, take about two moments, moments, minutes. What I'd like for you to do is to turn to your neighbor and reflect. Through which of these characters is the Lord speaking to you right now? Maybe it's Naomi's prayerful planning. Maybe it's Ruth's risky obedience. Maybe it's Boaz's faithful response. What is the Lord highlighting to you of those three characters? We're just going to take two minutes just to discuss. If you are by yourself or you're a guest and this freaks you out, just think, just reflect internally. It's fine. But if you're a a member of this church, MCC, I'm asking MCC folks, go ahead and turn to your neighbor, discuss which of these characters is the Lord speaking to you right now. Talk amongst yourselves. I can get your attention back. I want to honor our time. If you would stand with me, I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. I'm going to be available up here if you need prayer. We have some ministry teams, and if my ministry teams could just hang it in the corner for just a couple of minutes for people who want to receive prayer. Let me pray and bless you. I just encourage you 
Whichever of those three characters is sticking out to you, pray and ask for breakthrough, yes. And then begin to make a plan that moves more towards Christ-likeness in that area. One plan. One goal. One thing you could do this week that moves the ball down the field in that area. I bless you. Father, I bless my brothers and sisters. I bless them with pure hearts. I bless them with hunger for you. I bless them with minds that are free of distraction, free of worry, and minds that are fixed on you, Abba Father, who is rest and who is our home. I bless you this Christmas season that you will hold, hold back the hecticness of the season and intentionally engage with Abba. I bless you with courage to have risky obedience.